Welcome to the 2021 Common Good Forum and American Spirit Awards. Hi, I'm Patricia Duff, and I'm thrilled to welcome you all virtually. This is a first for us, and of course, we'd rather it be in person, but we're thrilled to have you and have so many of you here today. I hope you have a drink in hand and you're settling in. But before I leave tonight's event to our very in the very capable hands of our an unbelievable host, just a few words. I'd like, first of all, to thank some very good friends of the Common Good who have helped make the Common Good the success it is. You've given your time, your support, your advice, your wisdom. You've helped us present riveting, timely, and essential conversations with some of the world's greatest experts, leaders, activists, and many of you are also heroes in your own right. So let me just thank, first of all, I want to thank uh, former thank Homeland you. Secretary Jay Johnson. Please say hello, wave. Thank you, Jay, for everything. Uh, thank you, Kay Koplovitz, Alan Patrickoff, Tom Rogers, Stephen Brill, Susan Del Percio, Nicholas Burns, Nouriel Rabini, Bernard Schwartz, uh, Claudine and Fred Baker, um, Jane Harmon, Congresswoman Harmon, Naomi Wolf, Ambassador Paolino, Ambassador Begley, the Honorable Jillian Sorensen, Honorable Nancy Rubin, Peter Granis. Uh, thank you to um, Bill Broyles, our, uh, one of our new folks who's uh, from the East, West Coast. We're so happy to have you. We're always helpful and always grateful to have people from the press and the media. So we want to give a shout out to Marie Brenner, Nancy Collins, Rita Cosby, Felicia Taylor, and thank you to Richard Cohen, Liz Robbins, Evelyn and Lynn the Rothschild, Linda and Mort Janklo, and so many others of you. Thank you so much. Um, at The Common Good, we're about elevating voices, the voices of the best of our people, voices that are important, voices that are renowned throughout the world, like so many of our honorees tonight, and also those that are overlooked People on the front lines, like Nurse Chelsea Ernest, who you will meet in just a few minutes. We're about putting a spotlight, not just on the best of the American people, but also the best of American democratic values. Free and open dialogue, a vigorous free press, an engaged citizenry, and the opportunity to celebrate what unites us. These are somewhat lofty goals, and we thank you all for helping us strive to achieve them. Before we get to our honorees, we want to congratulate and give thanks to Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney for her tenacity over decades to make real the dream of a woman's national history museum, a goal for which the common good has been supportive. And with her, we've made it one of our initiatives too. Congresswoman Maloney was recently made, has recently made significant progress to build on, build the museum on the mall with the Smithsonian. Congresswoman Maloney, please take a bow. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Patricia. Thank you so much. And thank you so much to uh, Common Good for all of your support over these years. Uh, thank you. Well, congratulations to you, Carolyn. You did it. You did all the hard work. Help. So thank with you. your help. More to, more to come on that. And thank you so much. And with that, I want to hand the program over to our incredible hosts and great friends of the Common Good. They're both brilliant, talented, and they just happen to be married to each other. Please welcome Margaret Hoover, the host from Firing Line with, uh, with Margaret Hoover on PBS and CNN's senior political analyst and anchor and author of one of my favorite books on George Washington and one on Lincoln soon to come, John Avlon. Hey. Thank you so much, Patricia. And thank you. Good evening to all of you at the Common Good. It is really a, a privilege for us to be back with you. And we're going to walk you through our program for this evening. Uh, we do hope that you have a drink with you. We uh, we encourage, uh, you know, the imbibing uh, and enjoyment. This is all very serious, um, actually it's very serious awards to true heroes this evening. Uh, but by all means, it, it, it doesn't, it can be enjoyable as well. Um, for sure. So, John, would you like to, with that, or? Well, we're going to give you a quick uh, sort of rundown of, of the evening. So, you know, this isn't the Oscars, but you should know what's who's coming up. Um, first off, we're going to be offered the uh, award for courageous service in the pandemic to nurse Chelsea Ernest. 
Then uh, my colleague Clarissa Ward at CNN is going to get the award for courage in journalism. Followed by uh, the award for public integrity, which will be awarded to Ken Burns and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, and then following that, there's something even more extraordinary, if you can, if you can imagine. Um, there's an extraordinary group of diplomats and national security <clears throat> experts who distinguished themselves in public service this year, and they will receive that award, Distinguished Public Service. And it is the first time these four have been together since the major events that happened in our country. It is Dr. Fiona Hill, Ambassador Bill Taylor, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, and Ambassador Maria Yovanovitch. And that's just uh, gives me chills to say that this is the first time everybody is together again. Together again, so to speak, in a different era. Following, uh, followed by that, uh, Senator Bob Corker is joining us um, also for a, uh, an award in distinguished service. Yep, we got Ray Dalio for business leadership, uh, author, hedge fund manager extraordinaire, innovator. And last but not least, uh, one of the, the great uh, historians and biographers of our time, John Meacham, is getting the word for thought leadership. So that's a hell of a lineup. And I think we'll have a lot of fun talking with them and uh, I think uh, just listening to them and, and having really great, frank, honest conversations of the kind that we get here at Common Good. All so right. with that, I think we're just going to dive right into the program. Here it goes. Our first award for the evening is uh, coming right up. But first, take a look at this video. are limited. Um, the help is slow to get to you. Um, and there's lots of casualties. Hardest part is how do you explain to the family what is going on with that loved one? Congratulations, Chelsea, on receiving this award this evening. You are uh, truly one of the real heroes of this last year. And at the common good, um, there is no interest in letting the dedication of healthcare workers like you, especially at the Life Care Center and all around the world, go without acknowledging your sacrifices, your courage, and your dedication. We could not have gotten through this without the help and, frankly, the sacrifice of you and your colleagues. Um, so Chelsea Ernst, on behalf of the Common Good, I am honored to present the first award of the evening, the American Spirit Award for Courage and Service during the pandemic. Chelsea Ernst, congratulations. Thank you. Um, that was kind of emotional. Um, there's a saying that, that I uh, read about a year ago and it kind of stuck with me. Um, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I can't do everything, I will not refuse to do something that I can do. That was by E.E. E. Hale. So on behalf of the entire team here at Life Care Center Kirkland, we all humbly thank you for this award, the American Spirit Award for Courage during the pandemic. We're particularly honored because we know that for the past 365 days, every one of us knows an essential healthcare worker a paramedic, a police officer, even a grocery store worker who has continued to get up every day and go to work to provide for their family despite the potential dangers of getting COVID-19 and, and to potentially succumb to this dreadful virus. Exactly one year ago here at Life Care Center Kirkland, we faced a struggle the likes no one has seen in over 100 years. And eventually, so would hundreds of long-term care facilities across our nation. In our industry, we've prepared for pandemics year after year, but until you have had a true experience with such a crisis, you really don't know what kind of obstacles you're gonna face until you have faced them 
And more importantly, what is the plan of action to take? And that was us one year ago. This virus took 39 beautiful souls from us. They were our residents and our cherished friends, but Kirkland has persevered. There were a lot of hands and hearts that went into caring for the patients and the healthcare workers here at Kirkland during the first week of March. And I'm sure that I would be leaving out a lot of them if I sat to try and list them all. But I really wanna extend a thank you to Nancy Butner, our divisional vice president and Todd Fletcher, the president of Life Care Centers of America. They were at Kirkland every day managing all the millions of tasks and processes that needed to take place. And Clemente Aquino, the life care uh, vice president of rehab practice standards, he flew to us from Tennessee and he worked 14 double shifts as a nurse aide to help manage the outbreak. And Carol Holgan and her team in Tennessee who continually scan the mountains of guidance to ensure that all of us have the most up-to-date policies to take care of our patients. I know that I have limited time and I could go on forever. So I want to again, extend a sincere thank you for acknowledging us for our service to care for elderly and the courage to face the storm head on. I personally want to thank my pastor, Pastor Kinson for always checking up on me through this hard time. And it's certainly not over. My husband Tyrone for his constant support and my parents, Bruce and Debbie Walter of Odessa, Washington for teaching me how to give without taking ethics of hard work and dedication and what it means to be a good steward to my community and my country. So just remember to do your part so we can um, put out the flames of this pandemic by making sure we do good source control with our masks, hand sanitize often, and social distance. And again, thank you and God bless. Chelsea, thank you so much. Uh, that was enormously moving. God bless. All right. And now we are going to move on to the next awardee of the evening. Uh, I think everybody would agree there is very little doubt that freedom of the press as the lifeblood of democracy is under attack both at home and abroad by representative governments or the quick and easy spread of misinformation online. And we rely, especially now, on the committed and hardworking work, uh, hardworking journalists who shine light where there is darkness and hold truth to power and the powerful to account. Watch this. Hamas or the Kremlin Clarissa Ward isn't backing down. We would not be the first to call Clarissa the biggest badass in journalism. So on behalf of the doc of the of the common good, I'm honored to present the 2021 American Spirit Award for Courage in Journalism to you, Clarissa Ward. Wow, um, this is amazing. Uh, this is so exciting. I can't thank you enough, everyone at the Common Good, Patricia Duff, all the staff and board members um, for this beautiful award, for giving me an opportunity to get out of my pajamas. Um, this is really, it means a lot to me. And I'm gonna put it down because I'm very afraid of like breaking it because I tend to move my hands a lot when I talk. Um, so I just also have to say that I'm completely in awe of the other honorees tonight. I totally feel like an imposter who doesn't deserve or belong here at all. Um, and I only wish this could be in person and I could be like all fangirling you all in the green room. So um, yeah, tremendous respect and kudos to all of you. Um, and I just wanted to talk very briefly um, 
about, you know, this, this award is for bravery and journalism. And after I did this Navalny investigation with a, a huge team at CNN and also a team at Bellingcat, um, we confronted the FSB would-be assassin who was part of the team that tried to poison Navalny, Russia's opposition leader. And people kept saying to me, you know, oh, you're so brave. And, and wow, that was so brave of you to go and, and knock on this man's door. And, you know, I say this sincerely, I'm really not brave. The people who are brave are my Russian colleagues who went with me to knock on that man's door, Oleg Tayakin, who don't have American passports that enable them to get up at the end of that and, and go home and leave, who are staying in these countries where there is increasingly an atmosphere of it's open season against journalism. And people ask me a lot about, you know, how do you feel about fake news and, and does it depress you when you're out there on the front lines and you're, you're in dangerous places and you're risking your life and, and you hear this term being bandied about so casually, so lazily. And of course it depresses me. And of course it demoralizes me. And particularly when you're putting your life on the line and, and you're going to the front lines of Aleppo to, by the way, tell other people's stories and shine a light on their stories and, and hold people who are committing war crimes to account. But beyond that, it's not just demoralizing, it's dangerous. And it's dangerous for all of us who do this job, but particularly what concerns me in the places that I go to is again, the idea of local journalists working in countries where authoritarian regimes absolutely feel emboldened right now because they have heard from the lips of the former president of the United States himself that you know, journalists are the enemy of the people, that the work that we do is fake news. And this has created a very toxic, pervasive environment globally that has without a doubt endangered journalists' lives and really endangered the work that they do. But rather than kind of focus on that in a sort of, oh, you know, woe is us and, and what do we do and we don't deserve this, I, I really have chosen to see this moment as like a rallying cry. Okay, and I feel it's our responsibility at this time as journalists to roll up our sleeves and man up and, and start standing up for ourselves and start standing up for the idea of truth. Okay, because what this all boils down to, to me, is from my vantage point, misinformation, disinformation, the vast barrage of it that we are now being every day inundated with and which by the way a growing swath of the population are readily consuming without questioning that to me constitutes one of the greatest risks to our society that to me is actually eroding the very fabric of our society because the result of this disinformation is not just that people start to believe in lies, which is of course dangerous. The thing that concerns me even more is that people stop believing in truth and they stop believing in the very concept of truth, in the idea that truth actually exists. And when you have that situation, when you have a society that is no longer able to distinguish between lies and truth, between fact and fiction, you have a very ripe environment for chaos, and you have a society that is uniquely vulnerable to totalitarianism. And I realize that maybe that can sound hyperbolic. I assure you it's not. This is something Hannah Arendt was talking about after the Second World War. It's a slippery slope, and I, and I do fear that we are sort of careening into this post-truth era. And so now more than ever, you know, this award is not really for me, it's for, for all of us who are really committed to keep on doing this job, telling these stories, shining a light where it needs to be shone and holding people in power accountable and standing up for facts because we can have different opinions about things. We can have a different analysis of things. We can all agree we have biases based on our upbringing, our education, our race, our religion, but facts are facts and lies are lies. And now more than ever, I hope that we can come together and, and find a way as a society to agree on that and to grow consensus around that um, in a very inclusive way. So that's all I wanted to say. And, and I hope we're gonna chat a little bit now, uh, Margaret and John. Thank you. Uh, well, congratulations. Look, I mean, I we have time for just one or two questions. And 
I think Clarissa, <laughs> you're quite humble about your bravery, uh, but you are uh, you, you are extraordinary in terms of the places you go and the bravery you have to go and the courage you have to go tell other people's stories. What is it that motivates you? What is that that thing deep inside you that that keeps you going after Aleppo, then to Russia, and and to each of these these extraordinary corners of the world whose stories need to be told? It's it's you know it's funny. I feel like I've been asked everything, but I'm, that's a really really good question, and it's hard because you do have moments. You do this job, you see the best of humanity, and you see the worst of humanity. And, and sometimes it will get you really down. And sometimes you think, you know what? I don't know if I can do this anymore. But ultimately I choose to be focused on the power of human connection. And I know that I can go to the most far-flung corner of the earth and I can be embedded with the Taliban and spend an evening with their wives and be putting moisturizer on their faces and sharing a profound human connection. And that ability to kind of transcend so many of these intense geopolitical forces that have, you know, resulted in mass violence and war and atrocities. That's really what keeps me going is that I feel like hopefully if we can keep coming back to our shared humanity, then hopefully it's not all in vain. Well, well Clarissa, it is not in vain as long <clears throat> as you stay on the beat. And and by the way, I just want to say, you know, Clarissa, among her colleagues in journalism and at CNN, Clarissa is every bit regarded as the rock star that you might see her in uh, on air. Um, she is respected and she is beloved and she deserved all the, uh, deserves all the awards. So it's good to see you. And congratulations, Clarissa. C congratulations and, and keep it up. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. All right. And now to public integrity. All right. Um, now this is going to be fun. Not that the last one wasn't, because Clarissa is great, but it's really my honor to introduce two of America's greatest teachers. I really do believe they are. The work of Ken Burns and Neil deGrasse Tyson has made history and space come alive in the eyes of eyes of multiple generations. And this is personal experience because these folks are also rock stars here in the Hoovalon home. We're going to start with uh, Neil, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, America's best-known scientist as much as anyone inspired Americans to aim for the stars while staying grounded in scientific reality. And there's one quote I love by him. It says, I dream of a world where truth is what shapes people's politics rather than politics shaping what people think is the truth. Amen. The time to science skepticism and climate skepticism, his work is essential for a country now more than ever before. So let's start off with a video and then we're gonna present him with a award. I'm an astrophysicist today because of a first encounter with a planetarium. problem comes about is when you go behind closed doors and you're arguing about what the scientists tell you, not arguing about what to do about what the scientist tells you. How about that little uh, video? Uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, it is my honor to present to you the Common Good American Spirit Award for Public Integrity. John, thank you. Thank you very much. Am I audible to everyone there? Yes. Yeah, excellent. And so so it got pre-mailed to me. In fact, I only opened it about an hour ago because I, I wanted to be have that surprise energy for this for this encounter. And then when I opened it, I saw, okay, you guys did it right. You did it right because there's a star on the oh, let me let me go to my to my native background here because where Van Gogh is interfering. So hold on a moment. <laughs> I kind of dig the trippy Van Gogh, but okay. Oh, wow. uh -huh. we can get back to Van Gogh. So uh, it's got a star on the top. So so I especially like it for, <laughs> for for that reason. But but thank you. And 
I just want to say, um, you know, you do, we, you do what you think is right in the world, and you try to make the world better today than it was yesterday. And you don't always know if anybody's paying attention. And the fact that I showed up on your guys' radar um, was, for me, important affirmation that there was an alignment of mission statement for what we need to do for literally the common good, but I think more broadly, civilization itself. And often when people think of common good, they think of just their neighborhood or just their state or their country. And as an astrophysicist, when I think of Earth, I think of Earth as seen from space. And when you view Earth from space, you do not see it as it shows up in your schoolroom uh, class, right? Uh, that globe has color-coded countries on it. And the from space, no, the country borders are not there. Earth becomes simply ocean and land and clouds. And then you realize we're kind of all in that together. And in order to survive together, we need to do sort of the right things together. Uh, there were earlier reflections on this pandemic year. I, I also, I too had some reflections I want to share in this moment. When I, a year ago, I, I was on Colbert and he asked me about it because it had just, it was just, we were a week before shutdown in the United States. And I'm there in studio and we're having a conversation. He said, Neil, what do you think? And I said, this is a test to see if we can, if we will heed the advice of scientists and medical professionals, because if not, this is the beginning of the, of the unraveling of civilization. Because as just coming off of the, the previous award where the journalist award where truth matters, yeah, truth matters. It matters to the very fabric of a functioning society. And so, so, so yeah, I would, scorecard I'd say, I give us a C minus on that one, how we all handled it. Um, meanwhile, scientists develop a vaccine faster than ever before. So at the end of the day, it will be the scientists who will have saved millions of lives. But there, there are no statues to them and their names, they're not headlines, okay? The hero is the person who saves the cat from the tree, all right? And so somehow science is just sort of absorbed into everybody's, or, or not absorbed, it's taken for granted. People are not reflecting on how their life functions in the, is enabled by the progress and discoveries of science. And so I, all, all I do is try to share that. That's really all I do. And I'm deeply honored that somebody noticed. <laughs> and that was you guys. So thank you very much. Neil, you know, in fairness, I think a lot of people have noticed. And I can't wait to have a conversation about the pursuit of truth uh, with you and Ken in a second. But to do that, I'm going to introduce Ken Burns. Uh, who I firmly believe is America's greatest storyteller. Uh, Ken is a documentary innovator. Uh, he is someone who makes American history come alive. It shows the, the depth and breadth of our history without ever compromising on hard truths while still painting a portrait of a more united America. It has been a real honor in recent years to get to call Ken a friend. I genuinely believe that if you need to explain American culture to anyone, just the history side, show Ken's Civil War, baseball, uh, jazz, and country music. That, that, that'll that give you the, as good a crash course and who we are as a country and our characters you need to know. And his upcoming doc on Hemingway is excellent as well. Ken, let's watch a video and then I'll have you say a few words and a conversation with the two of you. Ken, my friend, it's honored to present you as well with the American Spirit Award for Public Integrity. How to unmute myself. There you are. There we are. Sorry about that. Um, thank you, John, my friend, for this uh, tremendous honor and to the common good. I'm, I'm really moved and and very grateful and and so flattered to be following uh, such extraordinary people as Clarissa and Chelsea and Neil and all the other people upcoming. Um, they are truly wonderful Americans. Uh, I do have a film coming out on Hemingway next month, but I just finished an, another film. We just finished another film on the life of Muhammad Ali and on his 
gravestone in Louisville, Kentucky is this uh, phrase that says, service to others is your rent, is the rent you pay for your room in heaven. And it's a really wonderful phrase. But during his life, he didn't say that. He, he changed it a little bit. He said, service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. And I think both of those frame that man and his extraordinary contributions. And I think the kind of wish that we all have for ourselves. As I've told you, John, I've spent the last 40, almost 45 years uh, telling stories about the US. But I've also been telling stories about us, that is to say the two letter lowercase plural pronoun. And there's a big difference between the intimacy of us and also we and our and the majesty and the complexity and the contradiction and even the controversy of the US. And that has been the beat I have been so honored uh, to pursue. As I was promoting uh, the country music series in the summer of 19, I suddenly realized as I was talking about this that there's only us, there's no them. And the great challenge that we've all been talking about, uh, particularly Clarissa and Neil, is that we are often, too often, caught on the horns of a dialectic in which everything is either one thing or the other. It's black or white, it's young or old, it's rich or poor, it's north or south, it's male or female, it's gay or straight, whatever it is. And we forget to select for that thing that we share in common. And that is, I think, what is in common with the kinds of pursuits that not just Clarissa and Neil and I do, but also Chelsea, uh, of trying to remind us of the unum in the midst of all of this uh, pluribus. So I'm extremely honored to join these distinguished colleagues, and I am so grateful for your confidence. And uh, we've got nine other films that we're working on, literally. They're in the works. And so um, we hope that you'll be, uh, have a chance to see other, other aspects of us. Well, you know that we will. And now we have 15 minutes to have a conversation between you two, Neil and Ken. And, and this is this is Hall of Fame stuff, but I want to stay focused on the idea of integrity, which obviously is rooted in telling the truth. That's both, right. both of you do professionally, but the truth's had tough going in recent years. And uh, Ken, I want to start with you and, and just ask about, as we look for historic parallels to give us perspective, you know, we've dealt with a lost cause mythology in America about the wake of the Civil War, but that was about people refusing to accept the legitimacy of a defeat, not that they were defeated. Have you seen any time in American history where we're arguing about basic facts, such as who won an election or whether science and medicine and medical advice matters during a pandemic to this degree? Not at all. I, we are in unprecedented times. As you and I have discussed together, I think this is the fourth great crisis in American history. And I think in some ways, for all the reasons we've been talking about, perhaps the greatest. The first is the Civil War and then the Depression and, and World War II. But because of the, the corresponding crises that we are suffering, and I think your caption said it, obviously, this year plus uh, COVID virus, another virus of, of racial injustice and white supremacy that's 402 years old, and an age-old human virus, which is what Clarissa was addressing, the lies, the disinformation, the conspiracies, the paranoia that are very much part of the human spirit. What's happened in recent years is that they have metastasized in a horrible and unpredictable fashion. And the unintended consequences is that the toothpaste is out of the tube, the genie's out of the bottle, and we're going to have a difficult time unless all of us begin to work as, as you all do so well to try to speak not just truth to power, but just speak truth to this onslaught of lies and uh, misrepresentations. It's a terrifying thing, as Clarissa said. Uh, I can find precedents for aspects of every bit of this, from know-nothings and anti-immigrant sentiments to the lost cause, as you brought up, as uh, you know, illegalities in the White House, but never have we had the sponsoring of such a mammoth set of lies coming down from the chief executive mm -hmm. of, of the United States. And so we have our work cut out for us in the midst of this 
you know, perfect storm, the intersection of all of these uh, incredible viruses, the last of which is the one that we are, is really going to be the test of whether we survive as a democracy or become uh, a Hungary or uh, a, another kind of uh, totalitarian state. So this is, this is our moment and this is our, our great challenge. And it does require the fortitude to get up every day and just tell the truth. I mean, we're all in the storytelling business, even in science. Um, Neil is marshalling a whole bunch of facts in order to whittle them down into a, a way in which you tell them. I, I, I obey the laws of storytelling. Uh, they're the same laws that Steven Spielberg obeys, but he, he can't, uh, he can make stuff up, I can't. And so um, that's a really important distinction, but we're all about editing human experience into some digestible uh, thing that we can communicate. And right now we have a lot of communicating to do. And we also have a lot of conversations in which we've got, we've got to really begin to try to reach those fellow citizens that Clarissa was talking about who, are, who have subscribed so wholeheartedly uh, to not just the big lie, but the millions of little lies that right. are negated. So, Neil, let's take it that from there. I mean, you know, science tends to get the last laugh, but you as a storyteller of science, how, I mean, how do you approach trying to win over science skeptics, let's be polite about it, or just science denialists, whether it's about COVID or climate change, right? One's fast moving, <clears throat> one's slow moving prices. What's the yeah. technique you use to, to break down their resistance to facts? Uh, let me just uh, uh, address something that Ken mentioned. He was distinguishing his own storytelling um, methods and tools for making film and, and contrasting it with Steven Spielberg. Ken, you didn't know that uh, E.T. was a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, this between you and me, yeah, don't, yeah, don't let that out. Don't, don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, we're all um, in Area 52. Um, what I try to do is with intermittent success is hold an idea that empowers you to think more deeply about a topic, but hold it out in front of you. And if it's out in front of you, you have to sort of step forward to reach it. You don't sort of absorb it into where you are. And so if you step forward to reach it, you're kind of a little bit in a new place. Now there's a new idea that can occupy your thoughts and possibly influence your conduct. And, and this isn't, I think it's important because it's not obvious that you're going to just walk up to somebody, have a conversation, and then all is well. All right. I'm reminded of, let's remind ourselves first that in the recent election, um, Donald Trump got 74 million votes. That is more votes than anyone has ever gotten in any election other than Biden in that same election. So it's not about the, the chief executive. The, your, your point, that's the wrong, uh, as an educator, you can swap leaders out all you want, but I get, at some time you gotta turn around and who's, who are your fellow country, who, who, who are they? At some point you have to figure that out. Otherwise you can't address any of these problems. And so, so I'm, I'm reminded, I saw a CNN story 19, in 2016, the, the campaigning was still going on, and there were all these, all these um, information about the misogyny of, of, of Donald Trump, and they found a woman in a rural town, and strong woman, you know, she had a good personality and attitude, and they said, oh, who are you voting for? And she said, Donald Trump. And they said, you realize these things that he's done? And, and she said, oh yeah. I know he's an idiot, but at least he's our idiot. <laughs> and it was like, oh my gosh. Okay, so so there's, there, it's that's not a matter of let's have a conversation with her. To to that's that's different. So what you do is you 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 hold something out in front, and you say, oh, um, watch what happens to water if the temperature goes up, and it so then it expands a little bit. Well, if you put that in the ocean, that converts to like three feet difference, all right? Or you can do the math on this. And by the way, take a look at this country in the South Pacific, all right? The average sea level is like one meter above. If this keeps up, the country disappears. And you sort of put that in their lap and then they gotta think about it, okay? 
they got to wonder about that. And so what I have found is even in adults, all kids have it, but even in adults, there's a, there's a glimmer of curiosity for new information that's kind of interesting or intriguing. And I seize that moment and that opportunity to, to, to feed it with something that'll force them to sort of look up and say, oh, I never thought about it that way. Because only when they get to say, I'm now thinking about it in a new way, do they then take ownership of the new idea. You don't want people to do something because you said so. I don't want anybody who I've taught to say, this is true because Tyson said so. No, if that happens, I have failed. I want people to say, this should be good. Here's why. Take a look at this. And all of a sudden, you become an emissary of the truth because you understand why it's true. And so, so you ask, is there a secret? I don't know if that's a secret, but I'm thinking about that all the time, John. That's helpful, though. That, I mean, that's, that's a very good, concrete example. Ken, to the extent that you can um, parallel a, a storytelling technique, I mean, it's obviously inherently different. You're telling people, in many cases, the history they didn't know. But... In cases where perhaps people are resistant to learning history for their own reasons of identity, what, what's the technique that you use to try to, to, to open their minds so that can seep in? That's a, that's a great question. You know, the novelist Richard Powers uh, said the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. So at the heart of the word history is story plus high, which is a good way to begin that conversation with the neighbor and with the stranger and with the, somebody who may be thinking that you're them or perhaps you think that they're them. And I, and I think that what I've tried to do in all the films is first of all, be nonpartisan, that, that, that the dialectic of politics is a mile wide, but very, very uh, thin. Um, and we need to actually get into the contradictions. You know, Winton Marsalis in my jazz series at one point just stopped me in my tracks and he said, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. And you have to be able to uh, tell a story in which you can contain the tension of contradiction without feeling compelled to actually say this is the thing or that is the thing. You have to be able to understand those contradictions and to widen the lens, to tell complex stories that includes everybody. Now, for most of the history of the United States, the way we have told the history is a succession of white male presidents, their administrations punctuated by wars. Our history is a different kind of history now. We're including lots of different people. It's bottom up as well as top down. And we're beginning to essentially um, uh, lay siege to the, the the castle of those old forums and they're they're crumbling you know the monuments are disappearing and we just have to be able to offer a story that isn't just oppositional that just doesn't make them a them and to include and that's what I've tried to do in the films and so what we find is that people do I mean what Neil is suggesting is that by by one of the, one of the things I often tell the narrators or the first person voices is, just be a little bit quieter, because if you if you if you lower your voice, you lean in. When your grandfather, as a storyteller, starts to lower the voice, you lean in and you hear it that much more. I think if you bring people, if they are required to travel that distance, any kind of travel, as Mark Twain said, is the assassin of prejudice, right? Because once you see how other people live, you are beginning to understand the own, the structure there or the superstructures that you put in place to sort of mask your prejudices and to, to reinforce them suddenly begin uh, to have the possibility of dissolving. And so we see when the films reach tens and twenties and thirties and 40 million people in their first viewing, something happens and you start getting letters from people. You know, obviously somebody hates it, somebody loves it, but you get the people who are really struggling and beginning to change and understand that this is not a close up. This is a wide shot. And we have a lot of different people in this story. And when we include a lot of people in this story, then you increase the chance of possibility and of the kind of uh, correspondence that Neil was talking about. In, in our John, John, I have a quick question I'm going to send over to Ken. Ken, um, uh, I, I believe I maintain a nonpartisan posture in my social media. If you, if you review it, uh, I'm not telling you who to vote for or what cause to support or uh, go against. And what I found is quite intriguing. And I'll give a precise example. 
um, uh, after one of the horrific school shootings, I posted um, at Walmart, the nation's largest gun seller, you can buy an AR-15 rifle, but company policy prohibits their sale of pop songs with curse words. That was the entire tweet. Now, that is a contrast of two things. I'm not even expressing an opinion. I'm just saying, notice that both of these coexist at the same time. What I noticed in the comment thread, this Twitter, of course, the, 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 is more often than not a cesspool of anger and tribalism. So let me just set that straight. But what I noticed is that about half interpreted it as me saying they shouldn't sell guns and therefore I'm, I'm anti-American not supporting the Second Amendment. And then the other half thought, I'm, thought I was trying to say that they, they, they shouldn't, that it's okay that they shouldn't allow curse words um, because they're a private company, but the First Amendment should allow it. But I, I, my point is I saw a split. And here's, here, is an, here is a politically and opinion neutral post but people brought their lens to it. And it became, it got absorbed through their lenses and they were thinking it was a partisan comment when in fact it wasn't. And I'm just curious, what do you do with people's lenses when they see what you put up there on the screen, even if what's on the screen is neutral? You know, Philip Graham in talking about uh, the, the newspaper business that he owned um, said that journalism was the first rough draft of history. Um, you never turn in a rough draft. The answer to that is just, I'm not in the business of the actual con conversions, I'm in the business of stories. Those conversions take place, the politics are relaxed. Uh, I'm not on, I, I have, you know, somebody who I will every once in a while tweet something out, but I am not on social media for exactly that cesspool reason. I'm in the business of telling stories directly, face to face or in the films we made. And that gives a more measured trap. If somebody is investing 18 and a half hours in baseball or the, or the Vietnam War, they're committing to saying, I wish to have, I potentially wish to have my molecules rearranged. And that's, that's an opening. And there's still an, enough of our citizens who do that. I, I, I actually don't know where everyone else is. I'm in rural New Hampshire where I've lived uh, for 42 years. And I've got people, you know, just a couple of houses down that are still flying uh, and in fact have added to their, their Trump flags uh, in support of the, of the big lie and try to be civil to them and just work on that level. John. Um, we only have a few minutes, but I want to ask you all the moonshot question. It's a little unfair to do, but I think it's important to do. Um, and I mean specifically that America's mission to get to the moon, Neil, obviously was a national goal, but also a, a unifying goal. It, 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 it was a divisive time in our history when we got there for sure, but it was a great goal that united the nation. Is there anything you think could achieve that kind of focus and purpose in a unifying way for the country? And Neil, go to you first. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, let's be honest about our past. The moonshot we remember Kennedy's, you know, inspirational comments, moon back because it's not because it's easy, but because it's hard. But you're forgetting the other parts of that same address to the joint um, sessions of Congress, where he basically said, we need to show the communists, we need to show the world the path of freedom over the path of tyranny, because just a few weeks before, Yuri Gagarin had just come out of orbit safely. And we didn't have a craft that wouldn't blow up capable of carrying humans. So he wouldn't even utter Yuri Gagarin's name in that speech, but that was the war driver that got us to the moon. So to say the moon unified us, let me just back that out and say the war unified us in, because the war drove us to the moon because Russia was making all of these advances in space. So I just wanna be honest about our own history with regard to that. So now we can ask, um, uh, well, will a, a war that everyone rallies around, will that bring us together? Yeah, but in a war sort of way. And you don't really want that. And I think I'm pretty sure that's not where you were headed with that question. Um, sending humans to Mars. If you select a set of middle school students today who, by the time we're ready to go to Mars, are in their 20s or, or late 20s, 
and we know in advance that they're the, going to be the ones that are selected and let's watch their grades. Are they behaving? Are they doing their things? And that'll be like the new Mercury 7 in a sense. All right, I've thought about this. And then we send them to Mars and they become our, our, our human emissaries because they can tell stories in ways robots can't. All right. You want to talk about the value of humans? No, they have less scientific value than, um, a, than a robot would, but a human can feel and a, and, and a human can, 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 can relate. And we give parades for humans and we name high schools after humans. So that matters. So I think, yes, a moonshot such as that will galvanize not only the United States, but the world. I like and that. we can show by example and show by leadership. So yeah, that would be costly. But look at what you'd gain. Don't think of an ROI monetarily. Think of an ROI return on investment socially, culturally. This is much bigger than money. Ken, I know this, it's difficult to ask big questions briskly, but what, what do you think is something that could unify the nation? I'm afraid that Neil is right in his first response. I think at this stage where we are today, that the only thing that would do that would be a, a surprise and unexpected attack that might uh, permit the spell uh, to be broken at least for a second of the big lie when you realize that your future or your safety or the safety of your friends or your neighborhood is perhaps in jeopardy unless there is a concerted effort to be us and not us versus them. Um, I, I'd like to believe that there were moonshots or Mars shots or some kind of infrastructure project that would galvanize uh, attention in a way that could do that. But I think in this day and age, we're going to find kind of incremental change. It's either going to go all one way or all the other. And I think we're holding our breath. But at the same time, you can't stand still. We have to be active in support of that idea of unum rather than just um, submit to the pluribus. Wait, wait. Uh, uh, Ken, we had the common enemy. It was called the COVID virus. That was an enemy of everyone, not only of all humans in the country, but of the entire world. And that would have been a time for us to align our tribalism and think of humans as a tribe to fight a common enemy. And we flunked that test. We Royal. flunked it indeed, and it had to do with the microscopic nature of it and the way it got politicized. I'm saying that in a traditional war, uh, that's that would be a, a galvanic moment. Let, let, let's hope it's not a, a war, but I want to yeah. thank you both for your perspective and your wisdom. And what a great conversation between two great uh, professionals, teachers, and Americans. Thank you both very much. Thank you, John. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you all.